Father, we thank you that uh, today we are uh, another week closer to heaven. Thank you that we are, uh, we've been made uh, ready. We're accepted. You made us new. We experienced rebirth. You've given us a new self, a new nature, full of divine life, a new mind that has uh, been awakened this morning with a desire to come into this building. Lord, you're the only one who could drive these people here, lead them here. You've made them hunger to sing these songs, to hear this teaching. Lord, you've, um, you've given us a desire to even see our sin. That's a miracle. And to hear once again the story of the one who forgives us. Father, we want to see Christ. Um, we want to fulfill our destiny. We want to live out that righteous, holy purpose that honors you and blesses the world. So gear our minds again today for action, for, for war, war against our sin, war for the cause of righteousness, the kind of war that Christ fought, <laughs> laying down his will, picking up your cross, oh God, and blessing all of the nations and filling heaven with believers from all the peoples of the earth. Because he battled against himself, battled for us. So today we ask that you would inspire us to battle for him, with him. All around the world, God, we pray that where the word of God is preached, people would believe, be rescued, long yearn to be made new. Begin that work right now, right now, Lord, creating somebody's heart a desire to be made new by Jesus Christ, and it's his, his name. It's in his name I pray. Amen. You could argue that if Satan had headquarters in Asia Minor, it would have been the city of Ephesus. It was the most important commercial city in Greece. 250,000 people lived there. Most of them were worshipers of an idol, uh, the goddess Diana, whom they attributed the key to the prosperity of the city. Along with the darkness of the temple worship of Diana was uh, longing uh, an investigation into black magic. Ephesus had the largest library in the ancient world, some 12,000 books, and many of them were dedicated to the power of using black magic for success. The people loved entertainment. The more immoral, the better. So they uh, often met in a theater that would hold 25,000 people. But uh, what Ephesus was no most known for was its uh, sexual sin. It was the most important commercial port in the Mediterranean. And sailors from all over the world would sail to Ephesus. And when they get off their boats at the dock... Soon they would be met with signs that would lead them to temple prostitutes where they would spend many nights. It was a city that was so dark that it looked like one of those places that you would say God can never bring light into that place. And yet when we look at Acts chapter 19, the great revival, one of the greatest in the, in the history of the church... You are so overjoyed to know that if God can move in that city, 
He can move anywhere. The Bible says in Acts 19 that the word of the Lord spread greatly among all people. The Ephesian believers soon discovered that even when they came into the church and came into Christ, that the battle had just begun. And they heard the voices of the world just like you do. Come back to us. Come back to culture. And the message that Paul said, don't go back. And that is the message that we're going to look at today. Ephesians 4.22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted. It is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. This is one of the best sections of Scripture in the New Testament that describe the difference between one who is a Christian and one who has not given their life to God. Because until you place your faith in God, all you have in life, in verse 22, is the old self. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. It's continuing to believe uh, the false promises that it always has, and that's why it continues to make poor choices. When you give your life to God through a relationship, faith in Jesus Christ, you inherit what's called or you are given a new self. You're not born with it. You don't acquire it along the way by work. It's created just as God creates planets. The new self is created by a supernatural work of God. It's not physical like your body, but it's as real as your body, and it dwells in your body. It is the life of God. God. The way that you know that you have this new self, how do I know I have this new self? It comes with a new mind and it has new desires made new in the attitude of your minds and that new mind creates or has a desire for two things at the end of verse 24, to live in righteousness and holiness. You were created to be like God. That's a good mission statement for your life, isn't it? I'm created to be like God. So you, not in, you're not created to be like God in power because he's stronger infinitely. You're not created to be like God in wisdom for he's brighter infinitely. But you are created to be like God in character. You're created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Righteousness would be his morality, behavior. Holiness would be your devotion to a righteous and moral God. So when you are totally devoted to God, that's holiness, what comes out of your life is conduct, that is righteousness. So this is what happens when you get saved, you get a new self, a new life. God gives you a new mind. He stirs up new passions. He gives you a new will, new inclinations that desire righteousness and holiness. And he does it. You don't do it. It's created in you by the gift of God. He gives you a new mind. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament when that young man, or what, I mean, early in the Gospels, that young man ran away from home spent all of his father's money, ashamed himself, became homeless, 
And there when he was living with pigs, something dawned on him. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. When he came to his senses, literally in the Greek, when he got his mind back. This is what happens at salvation. You come to your senses. God gives you a new self and a new mind. And you say, the Father, God in heaven is better than sin. And he does that. He gives you a new mind with your new self. When he came to his senses, he said, I'm going to go back to my father. So the question that we ask now is, since I've got this new self, this living energy life of God in me that has given me a new mind, new inclinations, new passions, new desires, why in the world do I still struggle so much with sin? It's the question of the hour. And the answer is because your old self still exists. It doesn't go away. That's, that's the battle is you've got this, you've got this, <laughs> you've got this old self and the new self. Unbelievers, all they have is the old self, but you have both. You have the old and the new And this old self is not going away until your body dies. And if there's any silver lining in death, it is the final deliverance from the old self. It dies when your body dies. And it's so great that when God resurrects this body, he is not resurrecting the old self. It's gone. And so only the new self and the new mind arise and live with God forever. But now your old self lives, it exists, with the new self. So get ready for the battle of your life. Because I want to let you know what remnants of the old self still exist in your body. We saw this a little bit last week, but it's so important to understand why you're inclined toward unholiness and unrighteousness. I want to take another peek at it this week. Ephesians 4, 17, when I, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, when Paul says, I insist on this, he uses the Greek word martyr, which means a courtroom witness. And he says, what I'm about to tell you is as important as if I were in a court of law summoned by a judge to tell the whole truth and nothing but the judge. I'm telling you something that's going to save your life. I insist on this. Don't live like you used to live. Here it's called Gentiles. It's don't live like the culture. And the primary description of the way they used to live was with the, a feudal mind. It comes from a Greek word which means empty or without purpose. A person who's without the Lord believes there is no purpose in life except that which he chooses. He doesn't believe, he doesn't say there's no purpose. He could say there's 10,000 purposes. But the only one that he chooses is the one that he wants. I read a blogger the other day. Interestingly, it came from the son of one of the leading evangelicals, leaders in our church, in our, in our, in our nation. And um, I know he's heartbroken. I won't even mention his name. It's not to dishonor him, but this is what his son wrote on a a blog. It's not that nothing matters, but you get to pick what. 
And you get to decide what matters. And I didn't include this on the print. I just didn't want it. But he said later what matters is to lighten up, get laid, and go bowling. That is a, a lost mind. That's a futile mind that would choose that as the purpose of light. His thinking contrasted with righteousness and holiness. That is his purpose that he's chosen in life. What that is called is total depravity. That is the characteristic of those who are without the Lord, totally depraved in their thinking, does not think that God is worthy of living a holy and righteous life. When we say that someone, the lost person is totally depraved. It doesn't mean that they are incapable of doing good because everybody is and everybody does because that's just common grace. Having a conscience makes you ever so often choose a good thing to do. But it's only what you want to do. You're still by nature hostile to do what God wants you to do. This is what we see in Romans eight seventeen. The mind, see the mind again is the problem. This is the mind of an unbeliever is governed by the flesh, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's amazing how much attention in this passage is given to the mind. Because without a new mind, you cannot change. Paul further says, describes the totally depraved mind in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They're darkened in their understanding. Another, again, another reference to the mind. Their mind is dark. Why is something dark? Because there's zero light in it. The lost person, the unbeliever, has no spiritual light in them at all. None. They are separated from the life of God. There is no spiritual life in an unbeliever. Why? Is it because they don't know that there's a God? No. The word ignorance here does, once again, means without knowledge. But it's not without a knowledge. It's not because of a knowledge that there's not been a witness. There's always the witness of creation. There's always the witness of one's conscience. They're screaming at us that God is glorious and that God is worthy. But the totally depraved person hardens their heart to all the knowledge that comes from conscience and creation. They suppress knowledge just like we see in Romans chapter 1. And the suppression of this knowledge leads to an decreased sensitivity. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. When the Bible says they've lost all sensitivity, it means they've lost a sense of shame. They can't feel shame. They don't feel guilt. Like the people of Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 15. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No. They have no shame at all. 
They do not even know how to blush. Then the New Testament in 1 Timothy 4, 2 at the bottom talks about a mind that's been burned, a conscience that's been seared as with a hot iron. This is the totally depraved mind of the unbeliever. And when a mind is not excited about God and does not see the worth of God, that mind is going to persuade the body to fill that body with some type of pleasure. And most of the time in a culture, it is sensual pleasure. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual desire for more. I put that phrase at the end with a continual desire for more because it's up to debate what it means. Literally, it means greed, and half the commentary uh, writers will say it is greed, which is perfectly fine. Paul talks about that a lot in the rest of the book. But I'm going to go today, don't mean I'm right, it's where I'm going to go, that I think that is attached to the preceding verses that the continuing desire, the greed is a desire, a greedy desire for more sexual sin. The totally depraved person is not content with this level of pleasure. What they did one year ago does not make them content. This is the language of addiction. It's amazing. Paul is writing in the first century. And yet he speaks about the physiological, psychological problems of addiction in the 21st century. It's like someone who... Uh, goes through a surgery and the doctor prescribes an opioid for the relief of pain. As you know, the purpose of opioids is, uh, is uh, they, they trigger the brain to release endorphins, the neurotransmitters in your brain that say, I'm happy. I don't feel like I just got my bone cut on. <laughs> so we're grateful for opioids in that context. But what happens is, after surgery, somebody wants to continue to feel that not pain and that pleasure, so they take more opioids, and the more they take opioids, the less endorphins are released by the body, so they need more opioids. And it creates an addiction. And if you study the brains of addicts, all addicts have three primary parts of their brain that are affected in the same way. Different chemicals, different neurological structures because of the addictive behavior. Alcoholics, drug addicts, people with sexual addiction, it's affected the composition of their, of their brain. This is the path of all addiction. It wants more and more. And the primary danger of addiction is it tells you that you can stop when you want. And yet, you can't. In a sense, all of us are addicts, addicts to sin. Ecclesiastes 1 says, the eye never has enough seeing. We just want one more look, one more pill, one more person, one more purchase to satisfy us so we don't stop. And the Ephesians... The unbelievers in Ephesus didn't stop. 
They gave themselves over to more and more sin. They actually gave themselves permission to sin. This is what the scripture means. When it says, you go back up, <laughs> having lost all sensitivity, they given themselves over to sensuality. Every person that I've ever, I've ever met, whether they're dealing with homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, they have all come to the same place in life where they have given themselves over to sexual sin. It's a day that changed everything in their life. It's a day where they say, this level of struggle cannot be right for me. I'm going to give myself permission to do it. They no longer put any restraint on their body. They cross a line that say there are no more lines. If I want it, I can have it. I should have it. And they even begin to say, God wants me to have it. So that's what's happening in our culture now. Sexually obsessed, totally depraved. Like the culture of first century Rome. 65 AD, Nero, president of the capital city of Rome, when his wife Sabina died, had his son, 12-year-old son, castrated to change his gender because he looked like his wife that died and Nero married him. So we feel like, we hear a story like that and say, it's impossible for our culture to get like that. Really? You mean when a powerful leader says it's permissible to engage in transgender surgery? No way. No way. Only Nero would do that. If you would have asked people in the 50s and the 60s, especially all those people who were going wild at Woodstock, do you think our society would ever get to where it is in 2021? I bet they would say no. Even though it was a sexually promiscuous society in the 60s, I bet they would say society might go crazy, but leaders would never gather to legalize immorality. I bet they would say that that's not going to happen in it. Happened in Rome, it happened in Ephesus, it's happening now. And Paul says, but it can't happen in any culture at any time. It can't happen in the church. That, however, verse 20, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. This is the only time in the book of Ephesians that the name Jesus is used by itself. It's always Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. But here, just Jesus. And that, why does Paul do that? Because I think he wants you to understand we're talking about a person, a historical person that entered into your life 2,000 years ago, came from heaven to earth, lived and died at 33 AD on a cross, 
died for your sins, receiving your guilt into your body for you engaging in total depravity. He took the punishment on his body. They buried him. He rose from the dead. There is a person named Jesus that came to die for your sins and rise for your forgiveness. And he did all of that not so that you could return to sin. My wife had an uncle who used to, who lived in the uh, Beaufort area, uh, right there on the marsh. And one morning, as the tide was, uh, you know, going out, he got in his kayak and rode very far out and parked his kayak, uh, got out on one of the newly formed beaches as the tide fell, was walking around, picking up shells, and he walked and he walked and walked and suddenly stepped in marsh mud. I don't know if you've ever stepped in marsh mud. I don't know if you've ever smelled marsh mud. It's unbelievably stinky and unbelievably sticky. And he went down to his waist. The more he struggled, the more he knew he couldn't move. And the tide was coming in and it would rise seven feet. When high tide was at its max and he was in trouble and he reached into his pocket and pulled out a cell phone and called the Coast Guard and they sent a helicopter and they lowered a rope and they pulled him out. And Uncle Thomas never walked in the marsh like that again. This is the message of Ephesians 4.20 you didn't learn the way of Christ. You didn't see Jesus Christ. You didn't learn that kind of living from Jesus. His most beautiful life that's ever lived. He had one life. And he gave it fully to God. He said in John 8, 29, I always do what pleases the Father. Never used his body for sin. Only he used his body to free you from sin. You could magnify the body of Jesus Christ 10 million times with a jeweler's eyepiece and you would never find sin. It's not the way you learn Christ that you can love God and sin at the same time. He called your name. He saw you in the marsh. He walked towards you and he pulled you out when you were stuck. And he washed you off, brought you back home. And he did all of that, not that you could return to the mud. The great purpose of everything that Jesus did, all of his sorrows, cross, resurrection, ascension, the giving of the Spirit, and now His interceding for this very service at the right hand of God, His eternal praying, praying. All of that is that you would pursue a life of righteousness and holiness. It is the purpose of life. Not to return back to a life of sin. So the question that I want to end with today is how do you keep from walking back into the mud? How do you keep from going back into the culture? And Paul tells us that in the remaining verses. 
You are to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, I'm telling you, it's amazing how often the Bible talks about the answer to not living for the trappings of culture is the mind, a new mind. Not mind over matter, a new mind over the body. New mind. To be made new in the attitude of your mind. This is where sin starts. I guarantee you, if you, whatever sin you committed last week, before you did it, it started somewhere. You made an agreement somewhere in your mind to do it. It's where it starts in the mind. For the Christian, the primary thoughts of the mind are no longer on sin. Once depraved, now regenerated. You know what the main focus of our mind is? This is how you defeat culture. You know what the main focus of the new mind is? What Jesus Christ has done to give you a new self. To be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self. This is clothing language. Put on the new self is to put on new clothes. This is how you avoid going back into the, into the marsh, into the mud, into the mire. Use your mind every day to think about what Jesus Christ has done to make you new. Pastor Tony Merida tells the story of adopting four children from Ukraine. And he said that um, after they did all the paperwork and they flew to Ukraine, they had to spend 35 days in the country waiting for the government to release his four, four new children. And when the government said yes, the first thing they did is they took off all the old clothes that these orphans had worn for years and they washed them. And they had brought all new clothes with them and they put them on new clothes and brought them home. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you and this is the pathway to achieving victory over culture's sinful trappings is with your new mind daily to think about the love of God of clothing you with his newness. You dwell on that. The Bible says in Isaiah 61, I delight, so what my mind thinks about, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. This is the gift of God for anyone who's come to Christ. God delights in clothing you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My wife and I use a tag team approach with our, our, our grandson because he's, at 10 months, he's, he's too much for either one of us on our own. So, especially at bath time, we have a, a two-man approach. I put him in the water, suds him up, bathe him, then pour a little water over his head and his body. And then I pick him up, but he's so slippery and so wiggly. I just quickly give him to Lisa, who's there with a giant robe, and she just engulfs him with that robe. And he giggles and giggles when he's swallowed up. 
by love. This is the picture of Jesus Christ. This is what must be in your new mind to defeat sin. Every day you think about Jesus Christ and his robe swaddling you up with love. And it's a lot better than the dirt and the mud of the mire, the marsh. Remember the man who ran away from home earlier in our message? We call him the prodigal son. When he got his mind back, he said, I'm going to go home because it's better to be with my father than to not be with my father. It's interesting. He was in shame. He was poor, homeless, there living with pigs. He made his way back. And the Bible says when his father saw him, he hugged him, threw his arms around him, and then gave this command. Bring out the best robe I have and put it on him clothed him. That's gospel. That's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. That's what you get your mind on. What Jesus has done to make you new, how much God loves in forgiving you. It's very important when you read the story of the prodigal son to understand that the father did not make the boy go and, and craft his own robe to cover his dirtiness. It was a gift from the Father unearned. That's why Alexander McLaren says, our task is not to weave the robe, but to wear it. It's all grace. It's all a gift. It's a spiritually supernatural thing that God does in your body. You receive it. But you've got to choose to wear it. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and they were ashamed and the Bible says that God killed an animal and made clothes for them out of the animal's skin. They didn't deserve it. They deserved what God had said. When you commit this, you've got to leave the garden and die. That's not what happened. Grace intervened and he gave them clothing to cover their shame. But they had to put it on. And this is what the Bible is talking about in Ephesians for every day we put on Christ with the newness of our minds, the things that we put in our minds, newness every day as we contemplate what God has done to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God. Our primary thoughts now with our new mind no longer living for sin, but living for the purposes of God in righteousness and holiness. When we think about, how do, how do you want me to serve you? How do you want me to honor you? How can I experience you and love you and enjoy you? It's what we think about now with our new mind. And everything we do, we try to put that in our mind for that result. It's a mindset. You know, we had graduates on stage today. Through the years of Hope Point, we've watched many students come into this uh, church and graduate down the road from VCOM, the medical school. And I always love when these first-year students go and all of that knowledge hits them and they say they can't do it. And I just talked to a mom a minute ago who told me about her son Baxter. He used to go here and he just 
completed his first year of medical school. But somewhere at every medical school, sometimes it's week one, sometimes it's later in the semester, these students are given a white coat. You remember that, John? Yeah, they're given a white coat. It's called the white coat ceremony. And a professor gives it to them. It says, you're a doctor. But they're not. They've got a long way to go, a whole lot to learn, many trips to the hospital, much learning from mentors. But that day, they put on a white coat, and from that point on, they start acting like a doctor because someone has given them and said, this is what you're going to be. I believe in you. I'm going to teach you. Here's a white coat. This is what Jesus does. The day you say yes to Christ, he gives you a white coat. And from the rest of your life till the day you go to heaven, you're thinking in your mind, what can I do to honor this coat that he's given me? How can I live like one who's been given a coat of righteousness? So you make a decision to put everything in your mind that will honor Christ for the new coat and then you go to war with everything in your body that says, go back. And Andrew talked about last week, I don't need to repeat that. Wow, is that a battle of saying no to everything that is opposite of your mind. Everything in the old mind that's calling you back, you approach it with a militant attitude. It's got to go. It's got to die. Because I've been given a white coat I've been embraced by righteous love. I'm going to fill my mind. And that's what you're doing today. Listen, there's a cycle of the... Here's the rhythm of the Christian life. This is why you're here every Sunday. This is why you read your Bible. Every day there's a rhythm. This is how you defeat the old. I'm going to put new stuff in my mind and that's going to drive out the old. That's the rhythm of the life of the believer. New mind drives out the old mind. And if you're not reading your Bible, you're not attending church, there's no way you can be made new because it all happens in, in the mind. And if there's anything that you put in your mind every single day, that you sing a song to the one who pulled you out of, out of the marsh. Jim Wilkins says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So every day you think about the one who rescued you. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Let's pray. Father, today we just want to focus on your love. Love that lifts sinners out of the marsh. Love that lifts sinners out of depravity. Lord, all of us crossed lines, made up new rules, 
declared that day that we were in charge, didn't see your worth, your value, didn't love righteousness. Actually, we loved unholiness. And we were stuck. We were stuck in impurity. And we today, Lord, believe that the only hope for us is the gospel that we celebrate every Sunday. You sent your son to walk into our situation and to pull us out, to wash us off, to clean us up, to take our dirt and filth into his body and in exchange to give us his robe of righteousness. Today, Lord, I pray that everybody in this room would just imagine themselves by faith receiving the robe of Christ like a happy, giggling baby after its bath. Wrapped in love. Wrapped in comfort. Wrapped in forgiveness, oh God. I pray you would bring someone today, Lord. Someone today to say, save me. Wrap me. Cleanse me. God, I come to you. I believe Christ. Make me new. New mind, new spirit, new heart, new self. God, make me new. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.